1: As a reader and critic of young adult books, I find that one of my favorite things is to have an author surprise me. This happened recently with one of my favorite authors, Garth Nix. I've read and loved all of his books with their dark and intense fantasy adventure elements. But last year, he gave us something delightfully new with a book that pays perfect homage to the Regency romance greats like Austin and Heyer. Newt's emerald begins when Lady Truthful's father shows off a precious and magical emerald that she is to inherit. But from there, events take an ominous turn, and the jewel is stolen. Determined to recover the gem, Truthful heads to London, where, with the help of her eccentric aunt, she disguises herself as a man to make inquiries. Her efforts reveal that something more sinister is afoot, and with the help of an able former Navy officer, the thief is identified and the chase is on. When the pair is kidnapped and Truthful is unmasked as a woman, it looks like the lady will be left out of the hunt. However, Truthful is determined, and as the officer tracks the criminal, she finds ways to remain at his side until they defeat their enemy and admit their mutual attraction for one another. This delightfully unexpected story from Nix mixes magic into a Regency setting in a delightfully playful and charming way. Truthful is portrayed with such honest sincerity, it's hard not to cheer her on through her many harrowing adventures. The language and tone convey the setting with pitch-perfect accuracy for fans of the genre. Overall, the majority of the plot is expected but Nix's twists, the whimsy of the characters, and just the right touch of magic ensure that it is anything but trite. This book is delightfully lighthearted and a great read for anyone, but particularly for those who swoon over Mr. Darcy. And I'm pretty sure that there's some of our listeners that do just that in Rachel's world.
2: What creative process does an author go through in writing a story? Do they write about something they know or on a specific topic? Today Rachel talks to middle grade author Matthew J. Kirby about how he sets his stories in a variety of times and places based on what piques his interest at the moment. For me, he says, I don't write about what I know, the old axiom, but about what I don't know and what I'm curious about. Kirby is an award-winning author of novels including The Clockwork 3, Icefall, the Dark Gravity Sequence series, and most recently, A Taste for Monsters. When he's not writing books, Matt is also a school psychologist. Here's Rachel with Matt.
1: Welcome, Matt. We're so glad to have you in studio today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I'd like to talk a little bit about your books and the settings of your books. I think it's really intriguing. You are very unique in that you set your books in all different kinds of times and places. You really don't stick to one type of thing. So you have the American West, and then you have more of a Nordic ancient setting and all just kind of over the map to even futuristic. Your newest novel is a more kind of futuristic kind of setting. So how do you choose where your novels are going to be set? How does that come into your mind?
0: Well, uh, there's a couple things going on there. The first is that I tend to be rather uh, scattered, uh, perhaps even ADHD, in my interests. And because my interests very widely. I tend to just pursue things that I have questions about, things that I'm fascinated by. And that old axiom of, you know, write what you know, I I tend to write what I don't know, but what I'm intensely curious about. And so if that leads me to ancient Norway, then it leads me to ancient Norway. Uh, The settings, though, typically are just driven by the needs of the story or the idea. Those are in place when... So, for example, with Icefall, I'd had a dream in which there were these three children, and they were clinging to each other in this frozen fortress, and uh, there was an army approaching, and the, the children were terrified. But within the dream logic, I knew that the army was the good guys. And then I woke up, and it was a Nordic setting. I had been reading a book by a friend of mine... Rebecca Barnhouse. It's called The Coming of the Dragon. And it retells the end of the epic Beowulf. And so I had Vikings sort of in my... Mind already. So the dream they were they were Vikings, and so that setting was a part of the idea itself. I did, it's not that I said I wanted to write a book set in ancient Norway. It was that I had these characters, and that's where they lived. So that's where where the story went, and what I had to research.
1: So does that where your stories usually start with the characters?
0: Typically, it starts with the characters. Sometimes it will start with uh, an idea that I really want to pursue, like with the Quantum League. Like, I love crime sagas, like crime stories, like mafia films and heist films and things like that. Very cool. Yeah. And so I wanted to do, like, a middle-grade magical heist novel, which is what the Quantum League is. And the characters came after that sort of central idea that I wanted to pursue.
1: So that balance – how do you achieve that balance of, you know, when when is it the story, the plot that drives it, and when is it the character that drives it? Is there – is that just – the creativity or what you're passionate about or is there something other going on there
0: for me those are uh they're two kind of symbiotic to me the best plots are the ones that promote great change in the character and the best characters are the ones who make the most growth and change
1: that's a really great point because i think a truly well-crafted story is that where all of the elements balance. And part of that balance is achieved through understanding what your world and your characters are and how they work all together. So how do you go about doing that understanding, especially if it's something you're not familiar with, like maybe you weren't quite as familiar with ancient Norway? Uh, How do you do that research to help make sure that there's that cohesion in all of this?
0: That's the tricky... I mean, I do do a a fair amount of research, and there are things that... um, Before I can begin writing, I really have to know what my book is about. And I really have to know, at least for myself, what questions am I asking on the page. And if I have that in mind, when I'm doing the research, then I see things that work, and I take note of it, and I say, I'm going to work this into it. And so a lot of times I already have a sense of where I want the story to go. And so as I'm researching, whatever sort of guide I'm using, whatever vision for that story that is guiding me, that helps me in selecting what what enters into the story and what falls by the wayside.
1: So you don't plan out your books or do an outline or anything before you start writing? Or do you do some of that kind of pre-structural planning?
0: It's not my preferred way to go about it. I I have to know how the book ends before I can begin it. that's that's the only thing I go in knowing. I have a sense of the climax. I have to know what I'm aiming at when I begin writing. and I also don't know I don't know where the story begins until I know where it ends. It's kind of like Richard Peck, I'm sure you've read Richard yeah. Peck. Yes, I have. yeah, he has said uh, several times I've heard him say in different talks that, the first chapter is really the last chapter in disguise.
1: Interesting. And that's
0: how I approach storytelling as well. And so I a recipe for writers, I often say that I don't get writer's block, but but that's because I don't sit down to write until I know the story that I'm about to tell. And part of that is knowing how it ends. Then I know how it begins and I can find my way there.
1: Is there anything that you would suggest, particularly for potential writers, of how could they get that sense of serendipity? I mean, is there any kind of strategies that you use to to get that wonderful sense of, oh, I'm just discovering the story or characters that jump in there? Is there any structure that you think that you could recommend to help that kind of creativity flow.
0: I really wish there was cuz if i if i Me too. knew That's that why I ask. <laughs> Yeah, if i knew that strategy then i could make it happen on a more regular basis. I could bring it under my control, but it feels completely out of my control. Uh, i did not outline for example the clockwork 3. And that is a very intricate plot. But that book was filled with these serendipity moments where something that i had planted and i I'd, I'd written it from some unconscious sort of place, I'd put that in there. And then I didn't realize it was going to come back later and be so, you know, integral to the to the story or so necessary for the story. And some of those things are things that the whole plot turned on. And I can't explain how that happens. I, I just trust the story. I guess that's the biggest... I mean, if I'm going to make some sort of pithy suggestion <laughs> or strategy, it's just, and this is somewhat meaningless to say, but just trust the characters, trust the story.
1: I think that's a really good point, because you do. You have to just trust that kind of creativity and that creative process. But how do you keep track of all of that? I mean, it really is intricate, and it, particularly The Clockwork 3. There's so many different arcs and things going on in there that even as a reader, I thought, how did you keep track of these as you were writing? How did you make sure that that all flowed and that it came together uh, at the ending that you were planning for?
0: The, the biggest thing for me I think has it has to do with my process. I'm not a uh, drafter and then go back like I, I hear writers talk about how I just have to get it out. And that's great. I mean there's no right or wrong in the writing process. If if you're able to get words on the page and finish your stories, you're doing it the right way. That's that's all there is Very to true. it. Very true. But for me, I can't move on until something is right, until I have a sense that it's working. And so I will work a scene as many times as I have to, and I can't move on to the next scene until that one's working. So my writing process can be somewhat slow and laborious because if a scene's not working and I don't know why, then I will just stay there mired in it until it, until I figure it out. So with the case of a book like The Clockwork 3, that helped me keep everything straight. So I'm revising as I go, and by the time I get to a the end of the book, there could be some scenes in there that are the way I wrote them the first time through. And there could be some scenes in there that have been rewritten 10 times.
1: That's really interesting. So how much do you get other people's feedback throughout that process? Is it more solitary? And then you say, I'm finished with this draft, and then I'm going to send it into my editor? Or do you work with your editor throughout?
0: Depends on the project. I, I don't typically send chunks to my editor. What I will do is I will send the first chapter or two maybe three chapters to my editor so that she can get a sense for the voice and whether or not it's off on the right foot because if i'm off on the right the wrong foot i don't want to keep going in that direction and have to i mean i hate revision like i just hate it with a passion and i will avoid i will avoid it at all costs i do have a writer's group however and we meet weekly for 3 hours and we go over our stuff. I bring uh, 4 to 5 pages a week and they criti- like we we critique it and we're they're a pretty hard bunch. Like they will they don't pull any punches, which I really appreciate. I I don't think that our way of working works with everyone. Some people want a writers group that is more of a support group and that's perfectly valid. I want somebody that's going to put my put my writing through the ringer and that's what my group does and
1: so how did you find that writing group what made you come together
0: it, well it's interesting i was we were just talking i actually met with them just a couple nights ago and we were talking about this and um they it started out I had, i had moved and went to a local sort of league of writers that was meeting at like a Barnes and Noble or something or a Borders when we still had those. Can't remember now. But I just talked to one of the guys there. I said, hey, do you know any writers groups that are looking for new members? And he said, well, there's this one guy. And so I shot him an email and he said, oh, our writers group is full, but there's this other guy. So I emailed him and he said, yeah, come. And I've been going ever since. And it's been since 2006, I think. And There's only two of us that are left from the original group that was there. People move, people, life change happens, and members fall away, but we've replaced them, you know, as they leave, and we still have this sort of core group that's still plugging away every week.
1: That's a neat thing to have. Thank you so much, Matt, for visiting with us and illuminating your writing process today.
0: Well, thanks for having me. That
2: was Rachel Wadham talking with children's book author Matthew J. Kirby about his creative process. Next on World's Awaiting, Rachel visits with poet Janet Wong, co-compiler of the Poetry Friday anthology. She shares how she got her start in poetry, not really liking it as a kid, then later as an adult discovering its joys. She is now an award-winning children's book author Janet Wong is a former lawyer whose dramatic career change has been featured on The Oprah Winfrey Show, CNN's Paula Zahn Show, and Radical Sabbatical. She is the author of 30 books for children and teens on a wide variety of subjects. Here's Rachel and Janet.
1: We're in studio today visiting with Janet, who is a poet and an anthologist and has just wonderful experience to share with us in this area. So Janet, let's start out with a question how do you start writing a poem? What is what is the beginning of a poem for you?
3: That's a great question. In the beginning, when I was first starting out, I um, I was reaching for those childhood memories that that really stood out because uh, if 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 they were with me even even today, then I knew there was something I had to write. Um, but for instance, one of my most Widely anthologized poems is a silly poem about a painful memory. In fifth grade my mother told me I could I could have a friend over for breakfast on Sunday and I was so excited because I didn't get to have a lot of friends over to the house. That so was a very special thing. And that Sunday morning my mother got up extra early to make my all time favorite food. One ton noodle soup. And she didn't have a food processor. We didn't have a Cuisinart or anything. So she had the butcher block and was pounding, pounding the, the pork and the shrimp and, and chopping it all together. Pound, pound, pound. And I was so excited, so happy. Our food was on the table by the time, by the time my friend arrived. And she looked at our food and she said, Ew. Soup for breakfast? Don't you eat normal food? Don't you eat pancakes? Don't you eat don't you eat bacon and eggs? And she really hurt my feelings. Yes, we ate pancakes sometimes. We ate bacon and eggs sometimes. But when when it was a special day, we had one ton noodle soup, my favorite, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And so I wrote a poem. It was an angry poem. And actually it felt kind of good to get that anger out. But then I looked at the poem and I said, you know, this does not need to be an angry poem. All I need to say is, it's okay to eat noodles for breakfast. And the next thing I knew, I had a silly poem called Noodles that goes, noodles for breakfast, noodles for lunch, noodles for dinner, noodles to crunch, noodles to twirl, noodles to slurp. I could eat noodles all day. Burp. <laughs> so a silly poem, a stupid poem, but, um, but it came from, came from a, a painful childhood memory.
1: Thank you for sharing that. That is so wonderful to hear about that genesis. What is, though, in this genesis, especially in this something that's so emotional, so can you talk a little bit more about the challenges that you face, and, and how do you address those challenges?
3: Well, um, the challenges in, in, in writing a, a, a poem that, that, that reaches you deeply, um, that um, uncovers some... Um, some painful memory. The, the, the biggest challenge is getting yourself to write it, right? Because who likes to revisit that sort of stuff? Um, and the, the, the reward though is that, that there you've done it. You've gotten it, you've gotten it out, and now you can get past it. Uh, and actually it was only really my early collections that, that had poems like that because thankfully my life has not been too painful and so I kind of got finished with all that in the first uh, first couple of collections. And now the kinds of poems that I'm writing are very different because the last three years I've been spending most of my time with the Poetry Friday Anthology Series, what I do for these books is I look at all the poems that we've gathered, and even though there's a surplus of poems, there's al- there are always some gaps, things that, um, that uh, are not covered areas where I wish we had a poem. For instance, in the science book that we did, there were so many science topics that people didn't want to tackle, in particular science topics for the very young, because it's kind of hard, actually, to explain a difficult science concept to a kindergartner or a first grader. And so I, I found that I actually wrote dozens of science poems just to fill the gaps where we needed something where the curriculum called for something, but we didn't have that poem.
1: That's an interesting contrast between writing a poem where it might just be pure inspiration or coming from a very personal place and then having a topic or an assigned focus. I know that that's something that happens in school a lot with kids, where they have an assigned focus or an assigned topic. So is there any way that you approach writing differently between those two situations?
3: Yes. And it re- actually was really good for me to be like a student again, having a homework assignment, uh, because I'm able to talk to kids when I go and do school visits now about some very practical approaches to writing a poem that contains bits of facts. So one of the first things I do when I'm writing uh, a poem that doesn't come from my heart, but that, that's an assignment, is I build a word bank either by doing uh, research on, on the computer um, or, or, or with books. I build a word bank that I can draw from so that uh, I know that my poem's going to be on topic. And I think that that's one way teachers can use poetry with their kids. A lot of them wonder, well, how, how can I um, make good use of, of, of my instruction time? Writing a poem can take five minutes. It's a lot easier to write a good poem in five minutes than it is to write a science report.
1: And I think your Poetry Friday anthologies are a really great example of how that can be done, that you can take a poem and extend it a little bit with some experiences. Would you talk a little bit about those anthologies for us today?
3: Sure. So uh, I was writing books of poetry, picture books, chapter books, uh, published by big publishers, And after 21 books being published the regular way, uh, and just about as many years writing and, and speaking at conferences, one of my colleagues, Sylvia Bardell, told me that some of her graduate students who had gone on to become librarians had contacted her saying, we really need a way to teach poetry effectively and quickly. And so uh, Sylvia and I came up with a series, the Poetry Friday Anthology series, that now has, depending on how you count the the different editions, now has eight books in it. And Sylvia said, why don't we come up with this method called the Take Five Method? We have a bunch of original poems that you, Janet, will get for us, and then I, Sylvia, will write a five-point mini-lesson, To go with each poem, so that teachers or librarians can share the poem in five minutes or less, and incorporate something like a common core skill or a next generation science standard um, uh, into into the teaching of the poem. And so so we started this in 2012, and we, we now have over 700 poems represented in our books. We have over 150 poets represented in our books. And what I really am proud of is that we have poems on things like kindness and letter writing and um, not being anxious when you go and you get glasses, topics on bullying, things that, uh, that you don't find easy, easy texts on elsewhere. So, uh, so I'm pretty pleased that I think we're, we're filling a niche.
1: I think you certainly are, and I've loved using your poetry anthologies in my library as well as in my home. I think that's a great thing. They, they cross boundaries. But would you please explain for us a little bit about how you went about picking the poets for these anthologies? Did you just target your favorites, or did you reach out to particular ones for a particular reason?
3: Well, Sylvia has been um, pretty much the, the leading children's poetry scholar for the last 20 years. And I've been a children's poet for the last 20-plus years. And so it was a matter of reaching out to people we knew. And the poetry community, community is, really, is really tight-knit. And, and we, we know each other pretty well. We do favors for each other. And so we reached out to, uh, to oh, about 100 of our, of our closest poetry friends, and said, would you be willing to join us in this adventure? And almost everyone has said yes. Can I read one poem from one of our books?
1: Yes, please.
3: There is a poem by Eileen Spinelli called How to Love Your Little Corner of the World. Help a neighbor plant a tree. Hug your friends and family. Be kind to pets. Feed the birds. Use your please and thank you words. Share a book. Take a walk. Someone's lonely. Stop and talk. And I love the way Eileen ends on that, someone's lonely, stop and talk. That is so much who she is, and it's really um, a great message for us all. We need to stop, slow down, listen to each other, and, and respect each other, uh, talk about things, chat a little bit more, and that's what poems can help uh, remind us to
1: do. I I couldn't agree more. And I think that is just a perfect way to end our conversation today. Thank you so much, Janet. Great. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Janet. Bye-bye.
2: Published poet and co-compiler of the Poetry Friday Anthology, Janet Wong, talking with Rachel Wadham of Worlds Awaiting. We'll finish the show today with some delightful storytelling from three children, they shared their stories with McKenna Baus, a team member of the Appleseed, a program heard on BYU Radio. The audio you're going to hear was recorded at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival in Orem, Utah.
0: Okay, so what is your name? Whitney. Okay, and what's your story? Once upon a time, I was born in Africa Okay. And then when I was five, my parents came and adopted me, and I've been living here for six years, and I have moved once in my life, and I have five siblings, Fine. and I love soccer and running, mm-hmm. and I... Love to tell jokes about other people <laughs> and I love to sing and the end. Awesome. Crystal, Good. once upon a time there's an eatsy spider crowd up the west. Right Out came the rain. Come on, Crystal. And dried a the... Rain, and the antsy weantsy spider caught up the spout again, and this time he made it. Oh,
1: Whee!
0: <laughs> I'm Lily, and I'm going to tell about one of my favorite dreams I've ever had. Might sound weird, but I really liked it. It was where I was just walking through the forest, and then I came to a big, huge cliff. I jumped off of it and it was so much fun, I it felt like I was f- like flying, sort of, but I wasn't, I was going down. And then I landed in the playground. <laughs> and the playground was full of all my friends, and so <laughs> I just played with them, and that's the whole dream. It was a short one, but I remember really liking it and hoping I would get it again. <laughs>
2: That was three children sharing their stories at the Tipanoga Storytelling Festival in Orem, Utah. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.